For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Shannon Paulus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 27th. On today's show, we'll explore an imaginary future where DNA alteration is not only easy, but trendy, and high school kids pay top dollar to adjust their appearance. Guiding me on this journey will be the writer E. Lily Yu. Her short story, titled Zero and Babel, was recently published as part of Slate's Future Tense fiction series, a series of short stories from Future Tense and ASU's Center for Science and the Imagination about how technology and science will change our lives. We'll start with a short excerpt from this story, and then I'll talk to you about the inspiration behind it. After that, my colleague Aaron Mack will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. And now, The Beginning of Zero in Babel, by E. Lily Yu. Since the start of school in September, everyone who mattered in the social hierarchy of ninth grade at the Babel North High School, not including the boys, had acquired purple-petaled eyes. Everyone blinked their flower eyes at each other in the hallways between classes, a firefly code that those without the cosmetic could still understand. And the message they transmitted ran... I am beautiful. You are beautiful. We are beautiful. Imogen was not beautiful. Imogen had brown skin, a wide and stubby nose, and hair that went arid to oily from one class to the next. But worst of all, Imogen still had the crayon brown eyes that she had been born with. I can't go back to school, she told her parents every morning. And every morning they smiled, patted her head, and shoved her up the steps of the electric bus. And that was that. I made a petition, she told her parents. You don't have enough signatures, her father said. She went away and came back. I have 50 signatures. I'm pretty sure those are forged, her father said. We just don't have the money, her mother said. You know about Mamu Arslan, Imogen said. Then let me get a job. Absolutely not, her father said. It'll distract you from school. Work will teach me to appreciate school, and having a job will teach me responsibility. We can't drive you, her mother said. There's only one car. I'll take the bus. If you want the edit that much, I do, Imogen said. 
Months later, after interminable hours rinsing forks, folding napkins, and loading the industrial dishwasher at La Rosa after school, her parents booked Imogen an appointment at the clinic. The doctor loaded an ampoule of custom, non-communicable virus into the barrel of a syringe, tipped Imogen's head back as she squinted against the lights, and injected a droplet into each of her irises. She blinked through tears at the small mirror on the wall. Her eyes were still brown. That's it, she said. That's it, the doctor said, stripping the gloves from her hands. You should see pigment expression in two weeks or so. Two weeks? Every morning afterward, she checked her eyes in the bathroom mirror, holding her eyelids open. It wasn't until the last day of winter break that purple began to speckle her brown irises. She danced barefoot on the bathroom tile in her cat pajamas. Look, she said at breakfast, widening her eyes. They're beautiful. Your eyes were already beautiful, her mother said. You had your nano's eyes. Her father said, if you don't like them, I hear the colors get patchy at six months and fade completely within a year. Are you kidding? I want to keep these forever. For what we paid, her father said, I don't blame you. For what I paid, Imogen said. This is a good lesson, her mother said. A job at your age teaches responsibility. That's what I said. And it seems like you're finally excited about school, her father said. That's what... Never mind. (laughs) January in Babel, Washington, was always dreary. But the next morning, despite the cold, gray rain, Imogen floated light as a jellyfish into class. Morning, Beth, she sang, slipping into her seat. Today, the glowing orange screen was warm as a hug. Today, the names and patterns etched into her melamine desk felt like a flower garden under her fingertips. Today, purple-eyed Imogen felt generous even toward Beth. Then Beth swiveled in her chair and the world stuttered and spun. For the irises of Beth's eyes, which had been plum purple and five-petaled before winter break, were now brilliant silver and sharply squared. And Beth smiled a small smile that was not at all kind, shook her head, and turned back to the overscreen. By lunchtime, the extent of the catastrophe was clear. The girls who had started the school year with purple eyes had all gone silver over winter break, or, if they couldn't afford silver, concentric rings of peacock blue. Even Dana, who cheated off Imogen in algebra in exchange for curly fries at lunch, whose father mopped floors in a factory, showed spots of blue in her irises. I had to ask my mom to return my Christmas presents, Dana said. That's the only way I could get the edit. Your family doesn't celebrate, right? Too bad. How did you know, Imogen said. How did everyone know? You know how it is. I heard Joy say she was going blue. Joy heard it from Xiaomi. Xiaomi heard it from Pooja. Of course, Imogen said. In gym class, when they changed out of sweaters and turtlenecks into t-shirts and shorts, Imogen discovered a final tragedy. What's Subdermal pigmentation, Dana said. Isn't it pretty? I couldn't afford it. My sister says it blew up at our college last year. Silver swirls and curls and arabesques chased up and down the arms of the girls with silver eyes. 
They glimmered, luminous as moons, as they sat and spiked volleyballs over the net. Imogen, staring, took a ball to the nose. Later, between classes, Imogen ducked into a bathroom. Her purple eyes, glorious yesterday, were red and watery with tears. A toilet flushed. Vicky emerged. You okay? Vicky said. Perfect. Because you don't look okay. I look fine. If you ask me, we're not meant to edit our genes. That's like overriding nature. Like correcting God. I write this essay for the far future, so that those who come after will understand. So much of our worldview, so much of our worldview is constrained by present experience. Out of context, what I did might seem horrific, but I assure you that it is otherwise. I majored in philosophy and graduated with distinction, and everything that I have undertaken, I considered deeply for a long time. After the UN proclaimed the end of disease in 2053, thanks to gene drives and in vitro gene editing, I thought, like everybody else, that we had arrived at the best of all possible worlds. Suffering became rare and luxurious. Cancer was history. Cystic fibrosis, a boogeyman. Ehlers-Danlos, a frightening fairy tale. Every fetus could be loaded with DNA sequences producing antivenins antibodies, and deodorants before birth. Every human organ could be grown in pigs for transplant. Almost every disease could now be managed, if not cured. We modified life to correct for our excesses. Despite the massive and irreversible loss of biodiversity, at the last minute we swerved from the brink of climate disaster. Edited fish produced enzymes that dissolved plastics and cleaned polluted waters. Edited crops sequestered methane and carbon dioxide. To reduce consumption and establish a zero-growth economy, the standard professional work week was set at 21 hours. Some lower-income earners chose to keep their long days, but they must be excused on the grounds of ignorance. We had built for ourselves a paradise, and in this paradise we stagnated. No great problems presented themselves. No dying population pled for a cure. Adults and children alike disappeared into virtual worlds, online lives, alcohol, and drugs, replacing livers and other pieces when necessary, with no great inconvenience to anyone but the donor pigs. We were finally free, free to waste our lives, to disconnect, to choose trifles over substance. Our world without suffering, it turned out, was a world without meaning. To read the full short story, Zero and Babel, go to the link in our show notes. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. The story you just heard is by E. Lily Yu. In addition to Slate, her work has appeared in Vice, Hazlitt, the best science fiction and fantasy of the year, Clark's World, and many other places. She also does narrative design for video games. Lily, welcome to If Then. Thank you so much for having me. I want you to tell us a little bit more about this term that you came up with for your story, cosmetics. What does it mean? And is there anything that you consider a cosmetic in our world today? I just shortened the phrase cosmetic uh, gene editing to something that I could repeat multiple times without growing tired of. <laughs> nice. I like that it kind of sounds like cosmetics. Was that on purpose at all? I think it was a nice coincidence. And I, in terms of um, what I can see in the world today, I am not yet aware of anything um, that is available in terms of gene editing. But I do remember seeing extremely off-putting ads for egg donors, uh, specifically Asian females with a specific GPA in our um, student newspaper. What year was that in? 2009 to 2012-ish. I think it says at the beginning of the story that this is, or the story focus, but focuses mostly on girls editing their genes. Um, is there a reason why you focused it on the girls? I'm focusing mostly on one female girl character, so the world is interpreted from her perspective. And did it feel important to tell the story through the lens of a girl? Um, that's the way the story came to me. The political landscape of middle and high school for girls is particularly fraught. So in this world, um, people end up spending a lot of time and worry on modifying their appearance. And there turns out to be this whole underground market for gene editing code um, that you can download and have made into an injectable uh, to kind of insert yourself rather than going to a special clinic where you pay a lot of money. I'm wondering if, if you designed that to echo anything that exists today. Like for me, it reminded me of internet forums where you can get medical advice. Well... DNA can be simply encoded in text strings, and all the the technology to create um, aliquots of plasmids with custom um, strands of DNA is all it's all out there right now. You can go online and order a specific sequence. Um, it's, it seems to me the natural consequence of designers de- um, creating tailored DNA sequences and uploading them to online repositories like open source um, hubs that we have today. Okay, so if I wanted to go online and order a custom plasmid right now, that's something I could do? Yep. Cool. And and what would I do with that? Because I assume I wouldn't be taking it and injecting it in into my irises to make them purple. No, one of the one of the most one of the biggest customers for, for those that would be like bi- um, pharmaceutical companies, um, anything in the biosciences, academic or industrial. So this is more today, like if I'm a researcher at a lab and I'm trying to create a cell that does a certain kind of thing. I could go mm-hmm. online and and pick up like a custom little bit of DNA. Is that what you're saying? You could pick up an aliquot of, high, of plasmids containing uh, a high concentration of plasmids containing that sequence of DNA. You okay. would then have to cut it out and um, have it integrated into the DNA you're using. And are there problems that occur with that too? Mm, depends on the supplier. I mean, there's different. The concentration is not going to be 100. percent They can get get it pretty high, um, and some you know some of them advertise, as I mentioned in the story, uh, low, low toxicity, low, low um, undesired contaminants, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's an imperfect science. Mm-hmm. But in the story, it turns out that people are messing with the code on purpose. Could you 
kind of describe that turn of events and and how this underground gene editing market goes dark? Because um, all of the sequences are created on purpose, I, I, assume, I assume you, miss, you mean um, creating malware inside the sequences yeah. on purpose. Yeah. Um, I think that's simply part of um, human nature, that there will always be a minority of people who see an opportunity to disrupt other people's lives and take it. So in the story, this hacker is narrating that they're going to um, create this kind of virus within this DNA that women will download and inject into their bodies, thinking that they're going to get beautiful glittery tendrils on their skin. And instead, they're going to inject this DNA that's going to cause this virus to spread in their bodies and then spread to other people and bring disease back to this world. What I found really interesting is that this hacker kind of has this idea that they're doing it for a really good reason. And at the end of the story, the girl that you focus on, Imogen, actually ends up having what I saw as sort of like it hinted at her having a a more interesting life where she's doing an internship at the CDC instead of um, spending all of her time being really concerned over her appearance. I'm wondering if in writing this story, you... We're trying to say something about whether whether hacking and being the sort of minority of, of using this technology for evil actually has a good side and, and can produce something good. I think bad things happen to everybody. And it is a question of what we choose to do in response that determines whether we grow um, as a result, whether that's in response to bad things or good things. So there is always the potential for growth. Um, I think something you were trying to get at in an earlier question um, is is how physical appearance is extremely valued in in women and girls, mm-hmm. and it becomes a form of social currency not only in middle school and high school. It is one of the few things that, um, if as a middle schooler or high schooler, you have some amount of money that you have control over. When at that age, you have control over very little in your life. And so as a very uh, raw and direct means of altering your own social capital, uh, it is quite rational to focus on the ways you can enhance your social standing and your relationships through one of the few channels that you have available to you, whether that's, you know, lipstick, makeup, and so on, or gene editing in the story. Uh, And the perspective I took of the second narrator in the story is, an unreliable one. It's one of somebody who sees the world in absolutist um, terms. There is a particular um, kind of cognitive distortion that's pretty recognizable to anyone who's interacted with it, in which um, one person considers them uh, himself, usually, the arbiter of rationality and what rational looks like, and refuses to see alternatives to Um, a very limited, often emotional, but unrecognizably emotional um, conception of the world. And so uh, there's a great deal of judgment of women who choose to use cosmetics, especially in ways he does not approve of, um, and an oversimplification of the world in which he declares that there's no meaning left because of cosmetics. When in fact, um, if you look at the family in the story, uh, there there is deep and rich relational meaning there. The, the women in the story 
uh, use cosmetics in some, not the, not the girls, but the women in the story are using cosmetics to reclaim um, their own appearance and the previous valuation of that appearance um, for, for their own uh, ends and their own artistic designs. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about doing narrative design for video games. Often it's the case that the designers come to you with a series of game mechanics. This happens, and this happens, and this happens. What's the story? And then you ask them, um, what is the emotional resonance that you want from this experience? What, what is the high point? What is the moment you want the player to feel um, a climactic emotion? Is it terror? Is it claustrophobia? Is it joy? And how do you like the story that I came up with, given the information that you um, provided me? And then you turn... If once you get to a handshake agreement on what the emotional arc and the story arc of the experience is, you write the script, the design changes, the script blows up, you redo this about 20 times, that kind of thing. Do you find it enjoyable? It seems like a very mechanical way for writing a story. I don't think it's very different from TV or film writing. And how does your background in biophysics inform your work? I think as a writer, absolutely nothing is lost. And everything you learn, everything you experience goes into your writing in one form or another eventually. I'm wondering if given that viewpoint, you um, go out into the world trying to have specific experiences so that you can incorporate them in your work. Occasionally, I do do research. (laughs) I have been on research trips. I, I have known that I needed to learn something and I've gone out and I've explored that area. I've conducted the interviews. I've taken notes. What's the most recent research trip you went on? Uh, down to the lava tubes by Mount St. Helens. Um, that took about three hours driving, and I stayed overnight. Um, I went through the lava tubes myself, which in retrospect was was not the smartest thing to do. Better to go with somebody else. Um, but I absolutely needed to figure out how to describe um, what the experience of walking through a lava tube for a story that's going to come out uh, in John Joseph Adams' Lost Worlds anthology in 2020. What was the experience like for you? Fascinating. Uh, it's not usually it's not usual that you can experience total darkness, um, and quiet and just the quiet except for dripping water, um, or to just look at the marks of the passage of lava hundreds of years ago. Could you tell me a little bit more about like what a lava tube is? Like how when you go into one, how long do you spend down there? Is it like a whole thing that you have to hike through? I think it takes about one to two hours. Um, I, wow. I wasn't trying to go very fast. Um, for half of it, it was um, quite bright and noisy. There was a school group and a couple of rangers in that flat, easy half. Um, and so I got to hear a lot about remelt and the formation of the striations on the on the walls. And the second half, the harder half, was mostly just me alone climbing over a whole lot of fallen rock, realizing how very dumb I was. It does sound kind of fun, though. Did you? It's, it was incredibly fun. Okay. <laughs> and and can you tell us a little bit about what the story is about? It's a very long title. Um, an account by Dr. Inge Kuhn of the summer expedition and what they found, I think, is about... Um, it's, well, it's a lost world story, from as you can tell from the title of the anthology. Um, it's actually the application of all my master's research into uh, polar exploration fiction, um, and dinosaur fiction of the Victorian era. A lot of times in the in, in stories in the 1800s where people go to the Arctic or the Antarctic, they find out that the world is hollow and they fall through like a hole into the center of the world where there's usually dinosaurs. Um, and so I wrote a story where 
the scientist joins an expedition to the Antarctic after the entire Antarctic ice shelf has melted and what they find. That sounds very cool. I can't wait to read it. It was a lot of fun to write. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for making the time and for recording this late. We're going to take one final break, and then my colleague Erin Mack will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. Now it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me now is my colleague, Aaron Mack, who will be hosting the show next week. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Aaron. So what's your tab for this week? My tab is a book called Through the Shadowlands, A Science Writer's Odyssey into an Illness that Science Doesn't Understand. It's by Julie Raymeyer, and it came out in 2017, but I decided to read it this weekend because there's been a lot of um, reporting on chronic Lyme in the news lately, and I wrote a piece about that for Slate, kind of about what doctors think about it. And Julie uh, doesn't have Lyme disease. Uh, She has chronic fatigue syndrome, which is sort of of a piece with chronic Lyme. And it's this like weird miasma of symptoms that are sort of inconsistent from person to person. Um, And it might be a little bit of an umbrella term for a bunch of illnesses. But the tough thing is when you go to a doctor and you present them with all of your symptoms, if you're someone like Julie or someone who has chronic Lyme, Doctors often dismiss patients, say it's all in their head, give them a bunch of treatments that do absolutely nothing for them. Um, And Julie has written a little bit about chronic Lyme and chronic fatigue syndrome for sleep before. And so I was really interested in hearing more about the experience of someone who has one of these really complicated diseases that is kind of all too often dismissed as you have a chip on your shoulder, you won't listen to doctors, you don't really understand your own body or taking too much advice from internet forums. And Julie Raymeyer goes on this whole journey to figure out what her illness is and using her tools as a science writer to try to deduce what the hell is going on. And she ends up finding salvation kind of in an internet forum composed of what she calls moldies, which are people who believe they're highly allergic to mold, which <laughs> science is not yet totally proven. Um Nonetheless, she finds herself following their advice and going to Death Valley to camp for two weeks, getting rid of all of her belongings, um, and ends up kind of functionally curing herself. (laughs) And it's a fascinating book and made me far more sympathetic to folks who have these medical mysteries. It manages to be like lighthearted and funny at many times, which is really just like a feat of work as a writer. And I should say that chronic fatigue syndrome... It's like being tired all the time, but a thousand times worse. Like she tries to bike up a hill at one point and just gets like physically stuck in the middle of the hill and like, you know, cannot take another step. That kind of thing is what happens. So do you think that you would now be comfortable with like consulting with the Facebook community about uh, some sort of like illness you have? Like, do you think you have the tools based on reading this book to sort of do that? That's a great question. I think that I would be more open to it. Um, I feel like what one of the things she does is does a really good job of keeping a strong distance between taking their advice as like input, but not taking it literally and taking a really long time to trust if it's working. Like when she gets back from Death Valley and starts to feel better, she keeps throwing all these reasons at the reader why it might still be related to chance. It might still be this thing. It might be that thing. And it might not be that they're right. And I think by the end of the book kind of comes to the conclusion that there's something going on with mold. But 
she really leaves space in her head for a lot of doubt that I think is very exhausting and very hard to do. Yeah, I remember she wrote a piece for Slate, I think, kind of like with a how-to guide of how to consult with the communities that are um, offering like these cures. I think another thing she mentioned was like they use like crazy scientific terms that they can't define. That's like a major red flag too. But yeah, definitely uh, after reading that book, you guys should check out the uh, slate pieces she's done on this this area. That's a really good point. And it's tough because one of the things that she finds out that she's really sensitive to or kind of comes to terms with being really sensitive to is this mm. quote unquote ick around Berkeley. They just call it ick. Um, and she never really figures out what it is. She just knows that if, and she does this experiment with washcloths where she has a friend who's in Berkeley send her washcloths and takes like fresh ones from her home. And when she smells the washcloths from Berkeley, she starts to feel super fatigued and she can't explain why. She just knows that there's something happening there. Yeah. There must be some sort of like step-by-step, like you start with the washcloths and then eventually you're like driving out to Death Valley. Yeah, I'm curious to read this book to see like how she eventually convinces herself that this drastic step will be like a, a risk worth taking. It's so fascinating because she's kind of the last person given her credentials. Is She studied math at MIT and then has a science writing certificate from UC Santa Cruz. One of the last people you'd expect to turn to this advice. And then it really ends up working. I think one of the things to be really careful, though, in general, is like, even as I read this book, I started being like, am I allergic to molds? Could this explain <laughs> my problems? And I can see how easy it is to get sucked in to these internet forums if you don't really have a real problem. <laughs> kind of the same thing if you're if you're buying like a new consumer electronic. It does this thing that's being offered to me, this explanation, this expensive good, does it actually solve a problem that I have? <laughs> and right. in her case, her problem was so big that... It really warranted turning to these. But for the average person, I can see how it'd be so easy to get sucked into like buying air purifiers or whatever. Right. Yeah, I was reading this review in Scientific American of this book. And uh, the writer says that she had uh, like tried to get uh, Julie to like talk, uh, come to a conference and talk. And like as soon as Julie entered the building, she started getting like she was totally incapacitated because there was apparently she sensed mold in the building or something. I can't imagine uh, something like like flooring you in that way. I mean, I think I understand now why uh, <laughs> why she would maybe be uh, motivated enough to go try out um, stuff she finds online because that just sounds brutal. Another thing she talks about is the branding of chronic fatigue syndrome is like seriously uh, not being sufficient because people hear that the first time and they're like, oh, I'm tired all the time too. <laughs> uh, she's like, no. <laughs> yeah, I had that same reaction actually too when I was looking at this. I'm like, oh, I like sleep a lot, but <laughs> clearly oh, <yeah>. not. <laughs> Clearly not any uh, anywhere near what she uh, what she was going through. I know one of the symptoms is unrefreshing sleep, and I'm like that happens to me all the time. I right. want I wake up from a nap and I want to take another nap. <laughs> I feel like we yeah. forget about this part of science that's just being open to new problems and new explanations. And part of science being able to like continue as the mechanism that it is is addressing gaps in our knowledge and this is a big one and it makes sense that it's here because medicine has only been around for so long on the other hand though i think a lot of people are really quick to dismiss chronic fatigue syndrome and chronic lyme as like not real problems just because we might be describing them inaccurately just because it may or may not turn out to be the problem yeah i i, I could see why everyone would be on alert right now too with the whole like anti-vax movement like it's really hard to decide like what what seems legit and what doesn't i guess if you're a a layman like me or any other non-science writers 
uh, I am curious how she kind of handles that uh, very fine line. I'm excited for everyone to read the book now because it's really great and should be a great experience despite being about a tough topic. Exactly. Aaron, what's your tab? So my tab this week is this video from this uh, YouTube comedian called Gus Johnson called uh, You Guys, Chris Hansen Needs Our Help. So Gus Johnson is this YouTube star. He usually does sketch comedy. I think he just got a deal with Comedy Central not too long ago. But he occasionally does these videos where he investigates weird things he finds on social media. And this particular video examines Chris Hansen's social media activity. Um, if you remember, Chris Hansen used to host this like kind of problematic NBC program called To Catch a Predator where he would set up sting operations to like interview um, pedophiles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, kind of a throwback. So Hansen's been trying to sort of reinvent his career online. He recently created a YouTube channel kind of rebooting To Catch a Predator. He's getting more active on Twitter, too. And uh, Johnson basically finds the channel and analyzes it. And I guess it wasn't getting a lot of attention because it was just really poorly executed. It looked like a fan account. Hansen, like, made these really weird errors. Like, he was uploading videos in 144p, which is way lower than any resolution you get on, like, an average phone camera. Like, it's <laughs> unconceivable, like, how that would even happen in the first place. Um He was uploading stuff that wasn't, like, cleared with copyright laws. The The channel's header photo was, like... This picture zoomed in on his chin for some reason. And I think it was its just kind of fascinating to see the star I remember from like the early 2000s reinvent his brand in real time for social media. Like, I think this transition happened for most celebrities uh, a while ago, uh, but it's happening before our eyes now with Hanson. And um, after I watched this video, I actually went to Hanson's Twitter feed, which is just kind of surreal because um, he, he, he does this thing where he'll like take videos of himself in like everyday life. Like it'll be him cleaning his yard or getting ready for a party or something. And I just remember him as a kid as being this, like, having this stentorian voice and, like, being really intimidating as, like, he's, like, kind of this prosecutor. And just seeing him, like, kind of try to do this, like, vlogging social media thing is such a disconnect from from what I remember. Man, the words he's getting more active on Twitter, that's never a good <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I uh, I would recommend, like, looking through them. It's kind of this, this weird, um, it kind of reminds you how much journalists have to, like, kind of brand themselves both as like a person along with their work these days, exposing certain parts of your social life are like kind of critical in, in some cases to like building any sort of following. And uh, it's just, uh, it just you get reminded of that very starkly with Hanson, I think. I'm scrolling through his Twitter feed now and he appears to sort of be using it the way you're supposed to use Instagram stories. <laughs> like every other tweet is a video of himself. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm like curious what, like who his team is, like what his social media team is doing. Cause he has a whole like operation behind him. So I mean, Gus Johnson offered to help him out. So Chris Hansen fixed all this stuff and then uh, actually blocked Johnson because I think he was kind of insulted by uh, him kind of poking fun at him. But uh, Johnson was right. Like, he should get better social media people, I think. I I don't know if he uh, is really utilizing everything correctly. His website is not good. (laughs) 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 There's a picture of a bunch of people (laughs) with their, like... Of everything above the bottom of their noses is cut off for a header photo. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of those rules that you wouldn't like. You just wouldn't know unless you had spent a lot of time online. Like you never want to cut off like a chin. Like that just looks really <laughs> like. You, but you don't know that unless you're posting pictures online. And I think like yeah, he he seems kind of new to this stuff. So you get reminded of all these like little rules you picked up along the way of being very online. So a lot of YouTube channels have like merch shops where they'll sell like shirts and stuff. And he has like this shirt of him like 
interviewing a pedophile, which is like a really weird design for a shirt. I don't know why you would pick that. But yeah, it's like interesting to see him like get into the merch game now too. Um, if you want like a kind of a bizarre, interesting afternoon, I would definitely look through his stuff. What year would you say that he sort of went into whatever cave he was in while while all the rest of us were learning how to exist online? So I, I'm thinking it was around... 2007 or so i remember reading this piece about how one of the stings went really poorly for it to catch a predator um it seems like the police were kind of trying to accommodate the the film crew too much in executing their uh their like arrests because they work alongside the show and it seems like that that was like not the safest thing to do and they probably put people's lives at risk by doing that i think the the show was put to an end around like the mid aughts and uh, he's kind of making a comeback now. I don't think though that police are involved with this instantiation of the program. So that's probably for the best. The hoodie is sold out. It's crazy that he he has millions of fans online now though. He's like not like some sort of, he's not a washed up like obscure figure. Like he has a pretty sizable following. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people remember this program and, uh, it's like kind of thrilling in a very perverse way. Um, it's a, definitely like a, a recipe for something that's very addictive and watchable. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'm assuming we're going to be hearing from him, at least to some extent, in the, in the coming years. So remind me what the call to action in this video is. The call to action was, so Gus was trying to send his followers to Chris Hansen's channel to like go like follow him like he was trying to like up Hanson. So Gus was trying to basically help out Chris Hansen. He was like, I'm going to send over followers. They're, you're going to like get more visibility for your channel. Um, I'm going to offer you people to like help out with making your YouTube channel like look more legit. And then Hansen like actually responded and said, uh, you know, we I got this handled, but you know, thank you for the ad- advice. And then I think Johnson at one point like donated money to Hanson's channel and like left a comment saying like, oh, you're doing a really good job with this, that you fixed it. And then Hanson like blocked him for some reason. Although that's, that's, that's Johnson's uh, account of what happened. Uh, I haven't viewed the interactions myself. Uh, it is interesting, this interaction between like this YouTube star and this like kind of this Emmy winning journalist that um, had a huge uh, brand in the 2000s. I like that. Just like very earnestly <laughs> offering people <laughs> who should know better help with social media and charging them a ton of money for Right, yeah. I mean, you could definitely uh, make a business out of that. <laughs> All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifben at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. Thanks again to our guest, E. Lily Yu. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Danielle Hewitt, who engineered for us in D.C. today. We'll see you next week.